0: Hello, world. This is Codebreaker. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. I want to start with a spoiler alert about a movie that came out over 30 years ago.
1: Shall we play a game?
0: The movie is called War Games. It's about a supercomputer built by the US military that is programmed to play out potential war scenarios and give us an edge over the USSR in the event of a nuclear war. You know where this goes, right? The computer goes haywire, and a bunch of humans have to try to stop it from getting and using the missile launch codes.
2: It hasn't learned. Is Erno going to make it play itself?
3: Yes, number player zero.
0: This is the crucial scene in the film, and it's totally 80s. A hacker teen, his love interest, a reclusive computer programmer, and a bunch of four-star generals working together in a Colorado mountain bunker to stop an artificially intelligent computer from turning the Cold War into nuclear winter. The solution? Get the computer to play itself at tic-tac-toe, and in so doing, realize a deep philosophical truth about the nuclear arms race. James The only winning move is not to play. The only winning move is not to play. This big budget message of pacifism from 1983 is just one example of a long history of our fears about the day we let machines start making decisions for us. It's probably science fiction's favorite trope.
4: Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave.
5: I'm afraid I can't do that. Dave, Proteus 4. We'll begin to think with a power and it will make obsolete the human brain. Do you have people who test you or might switch you off? No, I don't. But why do I?
0: We don't have to imagine this stuff in fantastical ways. The decisive machine is already here, making choices on our behalf. On Codebreaker, we decipher our complicated feelings about technology by asking straightforward questions with a sense of humor, a sense of awe, and hey, sometimes, a sense of dread. This season, we've got one question in mind, three little words. The answer isn't so easy. Um.
5: Oh. Uh.
0: Um.
2: Evil? A little, maybe,
0: yeah. Say it with me. Is it evil? We are asking this question about one kind of technology in every episode. Today, we're going to hear from a statistician who wants machines to help us prevent crime. You should feel uneasy about it. A big thinker at Oxford, so scared about artificial intelligence that he started something called the Future of Humanity Institute.
4: Like things that could destroy our entire future. Then I think AI has to rank high.
0: And we imagine one step further into the future. It's not the first generation
2: of AI we have to worry about. It's the generation that comes after, the generation that was itself created
0: by AI. So, the decisive machine. Is it evil? Remember, there's a code in every episode, so listen closely. The way we usually imagine artificial intelligence is in the form of a computer or a robot. And robot, the word invented by a Czech playwright in the 1920s, roughly translates to forced labor. Most of the time when we ask a machine to do something for us, it's because we want to make our own lives easier. There's some annoying or tiring tasks that we just don't feel like doing today. Take, for example, not wanting to defend your bird feeder from those low-down, dirty,
3: damn squirrels. I'm the um, CTO of uh, Perilio Systems, um, but but uh, software engineer works. Okay, so that's Kurt Grandis.
0: He had a beautiful backyard in North Carolina, a place of peace and relaxation, a place where he had made an effort to build a haven for creatures of the wild.
3: I had a bird feeder. You know, everything was going great, and then the the hordes of squirrels descended. They come in, devour the seed. So in my case, you know, I had a background in machine learning and uh, I was going to solve this and I was going to build a sentry gun. And when you say sentry gun, this is sentry as in the kind of soldier that would stand at the wall? That's right. Essentially a, a robot that stands guard over some field of view and then based on its programming, shoots its designated targets. Shoot a squirrel with a water gun in this case. Can you describe to me sort of how you go about building
0: a kind of intelligent algorithm to pick out the squirrels to shoot
3: a sentry gun at? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the first steps was just hardware. We needed some sort of sensor. So I used webcams, um, mounted a a water gun to this turret and built a program so that I could issue a command so that I could um, give it aim directives as well as tell it when to pull the trigger. It, it, you wanted it to be able to actually move? Yeah, so the, you know, the squirrels might be on one side of the, the bird feeder or the other. We're talking over-engineered solutions here. So <laughs> um, yeah, I mounted it to this, this turret that could aim and, and move around, and I could uh, give it some sort of three-dimensional coordinate to kind of train in on. All right, so tell me about the brains. So there is an easy solution here, right? So let's just shoot everything that comes into the, our field of view. The problem with that approach is it's gonna start hitting the birds. It's only the squirrels i a matter. So we need some sort of friend or foe classifier. Computers don't inherently understand things like animal size, or wings. So you give the system hints like, hey, we're gonna look for these things. Check out its color, or maybe the groupings of colors, or patterns of color within this object. How big is the object that's general area? Does it hmm. look shifty? <laughs> that's right. But now it needs to be trained. That's basically recording thousands of frames of data from um, the bird feeder. And then basically taking those those sorts of frames or, or streams of video and telling it, hey, this thing right here, that's a squirrel. This thing over here, that's a bird. All right. So so how did this go? I set it up and turned it on and... Poured yourself a drink. That's right. Sat back and watched and... The squirrels didn't know what, what hit them. You know, they they got up, they perched, and bam, something got them. They didn't know what happened. They're jumping off. It's hilarious. I, you know, it was, <laughs> it was great. But it became very clear that these squirrels were extremely persistent, and they were going to keep coming back regardless. And then, you know, it's North Carolina. It's hot. They're out in the, the hot North Carolina sun, and they're getting spritzed. All right. Yeah, why not? It's not so bad. Yeah.
0: (laughs) You get some drink with your food if you place your mouth right. That's right. So it was moderately successful at first, but very
3: soon it became an arms race. That's right. And, uh, you know, it it could continue to escalate, but, uh, you know, I I had other projects to move on to. And uh, now now the, the sentry gun just sits in my office, trained at my back, kind of mocking me.
0: One of the tricky things about being the parents of machines, the creators, is that consciously or unconsciously, we often train them to be like us. And shocker, we are not ourselves perfect. This is especially true in a scenario where we need to make a decision. Each person who is trying to distinguish between the right and wrong choice at any moment in the day brings their own bias. And actually, when we have to make a whole bunch of decisions, as we do throughout the day, we run into another problem that is very human. The name for this problem? Decision fatigue.
1: If I had to explain to just a regular person what decision fatigue means, I would, I would ask them if they'd ever um, renovated their house.
0: Jonathan Labov is an associate professor who researches consumer behavioral theory at Stanford.
1: You go and you're like, um, uh, let's say, renovating your bathroom. You have to go through the fixtures and the toilet and the sinks and the tiles. And there comes a point at which you no longer feel like making any more decisions. You're kind of, you have a sense of being fed up and you've had enough.
0: So we start out capable of making clear choices.
1: I
6: hear the voices and I know the speculation, but I'm the decider. But then over time. I'm the decider. 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 I'm the
0: decider. We lose steam. Lavov did a study about this. He and his fellow researchers looked at people buying cars in Germany. When you buy a car, you make a ton of decisions about what you want. Color, transmission, seat heaters, diesel or non diesel. Here's Lavav again.
1: And so the idea was that after you've made a lot of decisions that are structured in a certain way, you're going to start getting tired, and that fatigue is going to be reflected in your likelihood of accepting the default option that the manufacturer offers you.
0: But then Lavav got another opportunity to look at this phenomenon in a totally different setting. Another researcher approached him.
1: He had read the car study, and he said, we can get some data on parole decisions. And in particular, what we had is we had, a, all, you know, all the characteristics of the prisoner. And we also knew the order in which prisoners presented to a judge.
0: The data represented multiple judges, multiple days, and a mix of prisoners. And as Lavav looked over the data, he discovered a familiar
1: pattern. So basically what, you, what we found was that um, a prisoner's likelihood of being released decreased over time until the judge took a mid-morning snack break. And then that probability popped back up. And it sort of reduced as the judge made more and more decisions. And then the judge took a break for lunch. And so it popped back up. And then it, it reduced again in this kind of EKG pattern.
0: When you're buying a car, the default option is some sort of standard feature. When you are a parole judge, the default option is not letting someone out of prison. Lavov says the things his team observed aren't proven beyond the shadow of a doubt yet, but I asked him if the data did really seem to be in line with his other study. Basically, if it suggests that a tired judge is more likely to send someone back to jail. That's correct. What if the person sitting in the judge's chair was not a person and, and couldn't get tired?
1: That would solve the problem of fatigue. A machine would be useful because a machine would be consistent, right? So if there's anything we learn from our study is that judges are inconsistent. Okay, so what would a machine do? A machine would eliminate that inconsistency.
0: As you were talking about this, I just had a picture in my head of the woman holding the scales with the blindfold. And I wonder if a machine is an effective recreation of that.
1: I I think that there's a couple of things. One is that... Um, from the perspective of the, you know, the woman holding the scale, the machine would measure the weights better than than the woman does. Does that mean that we, that you need to replace judges by machines? Absolutely not. Because in the criminal justice system, context a lot of times uh, matters a great deal. For instance, involuntary manslaughter versus premeditated murder. I don't know how a machine would be able to tell that apart. Right? That a person needs to be able to tell apart. But it's possible that once the person you know, has some you know, rating of premeditation, the best thing to do would be for the person to input that rating into the machine, right? and then let the machine do the rest of the work in terms of weighting how important premeditation is. So you have two aspects. It's not as simple as sticking a machine in there. But some combination of humans and machines are probably better than just humans.
0: See, I thought you were going to give me an easy answer here, but it's not.
1: No, life isn't easy. It's complicated.
0: The kind of thing Jonathan Lavav and I were imagining, where a machine might wield the gavel, it's already happening.
6: This isn't science fiction. People are working on it all the time. And in other criminal justice applications, these algorithms are already in place being used.
0: Richard Burke researches statistics at the Wharton School of Business and Burke is working on a project that involves inputting massive amounts of data into a machine learning program, essentially an algorithm that learns how to make decisions over time based on data and recommends a decision to members of parole boards. He says programs like this are already being used in the criminal justice system. And the crazy part, Burke says most parolees
6: don't even know about this. The uh, future, I think, is going to be dominated by those sorts of tools. And the reason is that the computer um, and the algorithms that it uses can weigh many, many more factors over many, many more people than the human mind can.
0: There's something that does feel... A little bit scary about this, right? That we're talking about computers and computer algorithms that are making decisions about potential future behavior.
6: Well, insurance companies do it all the time when they determine what your premiums are. They make a guess as to the likelihood you're going to have an automobile accident and how serious it's going to be. But they just charge me more or less money in that case. They don't
0: decide whether or not I stay in prison or whether or not I go to prison. There's a difference there, right?
6: Well, it depends on how you think about prison. I mean, certainly uh, prison is a horrible thing that you wouldn't wish on anybody. Uh, But on the other hand, uh, some of those premiums can get pretty outrageous as well.
0: Burke says we should keep in mind that these algorithms are just one piece of the decision-making process. But we have to be careful with what data we use because data can amplify the wrong things you want the algorithm to be as effective as possible, but at the same time, you don't want the algorithm to be like, well, black
6: people tend to do this. That's a really good question and problem, and people are wrestling with it. They're very well aware of it. But again, you want to think carefully about the victims here, too, so that if, for example, most violent crimes are committed by men, that's an irrefutable fact, sure don't you want to know the gender
0: of the offender? Does Burke really think algorithms making recommendations won't
6: discriminate in ways that would be bad for the justice system? Uh, I think the first thing that needs to be considered is compared to what? So that when a judge makes a decision or a parole board makes a decision or a police officer makes a decision, are you prepared to argue that their decisions are totally race neutral? Nobody knows. Uh, The second issue is, um, yes, the information that is used is sometimes related to gender and age and race Uh, there's no way to avoid that. What you can do is make sure that race and gender and age, if you wish, are not explicitly built into the algorithm. But if socioeconomic status is related, let's say, to education, you don't include education, but you include SES, you're pulling in some educational factors as well. And there really isn't a good way to avoid that.
0: I I don't know. I I, I think about this kind of thing. And on the one hand, I feel good about it because we're able to bring in a bunch more data, you know, we're not going to have a judge make a bad decision because the judge is having a bad day. Um, All of these things make me feel good. But at the same time, I I can't help but feel concerned about machines predicting the future.
6: You should feel uneasy about it. How much are we going to seed human decision-making to machines in trade, perhaps, for more accurate and more transparent decisions. Suppose um, I could tell a woman and her family that the child that she's carrying has a probability, let's say, of 0.75 of committing a homicide by age 18. Isn't that worth knowing? Couldn't we intervene? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's worth knowing. I think so, if we have a way of intervening and improving the situation. There are things we could do that might make a difference, but if we don't have the information, we don't have the choice of intervening.
0: All right, decisive machines, good, evil. I don't think we're ready to make a call on that yet, so hang with us, we'll be right back.
3: Is it evil? No, I don't think it's evil. Uh, Not, I would, oh, that's a good question.
5: I think it's a little scary.
0: <laughs>
3: I, think, uh, I think it could be made evil, like most things. No. I think people are evil. <laughs> OK? A
0: decisive machine that hundreds of millions of people look at every day is their Facebook newsfeed. The company uses a highly complex machine learning algorithm to decide what to put in front of your face when you log in, be it a news article, a funny video, or a reminder to wish a happy birthday to a person who's important to you. That happened to me and a bunch of other people on April 1st, 2015. We got a reminder to wish my uncle Richard, who lives in Australia, a happy birthday. But April 1st isn't his real birthday. I have always been really close with my uncle. But even I didn't realize Uncle Dick chose April Fools in a humorous attempt to throw off Facebook's algorithm. Or it could have been an attempt to be sure his data wasn't used against him in advertising. I'll never know the answer for sure, because in this totally weird twist of fate, April 1st was also the day he died suddenly of a heart attack while riding his bicycle on the side of the road outside of Canberra, Australia. If you look at his Facebook page, those happy birthday messages from people are still there. Uncle Dick and my mother were really, really close. I'm close with my mom, too. But when we went to Australia for the funeral, we never talked about this. This weird twist of fate, memorialized on Facebook by my uncle's prankster spirit and a decisive machine that wasn't smart enough to know the real Richard. So I went home to sit down with my mom and give his Facebook page another visit.
5: I think most of the messages that he got, they probably just automatically said "Happy Birthday" because that's what his Facebook page says. So. Well,
0: Facebook also tells you, to, uh, it reminds days. you to tell people "Happy Birthday." Yeah. Sh- should we look at it together? Yeah, no, we should. So here are some of the birthday, "Happy Birthday" for yesterday, Richard turning fifty. Let the fun begin.
5: Happy birthday, Richard, Lavangi, and Rob. These were close friends of his and they didn't know yet on April 2nd.
0: Warm birthday greetings to our ever gorgeous and bubbly Richard. Mm-hmm. You deserve a great one. Cheers.
5: Mm.
0: This is from you.
5: Yeah. Looking for my little brother on Facebook, found all these happy birthday messages for the false birth date he had posted to April Fool the Scammers, and it turns out to be the day he died at 69, not 50, pedaling up a hill, pretending he was 50, and his huge, hungry heart gave out.
0: My uncle's Facebook page is still up. And yes, it's hard to look at. But ultimately, I think he would chuckle about Facebook's decisive machine continuing to send him people with happy birthday wishes on April Fool's Day. And I think he'd be glad he's still getting visitors. For a guy who loved science fiction and pranks, a man who believed in technology's potential for creating good and evil, it's a fitting tribute. If we think it's tricky now to build machines that really work, whether you're trying to squirt a squirrel or suggest accurate happy birthday wishes, even judge an inmate's level of reform, I invite you to go with me way into the future. People are already thinking about this future in order to get out ahead of what they say is inevitable. Example, the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. I called the founding director Nick Bostrom over Skype. Hi, is that Nick?
4: Um, yes, that's me.
0: Hey. Hi, Nick. It's Ben Johnson at Marketplace. How are you?
1: Um, so far, so
4: good. Thanks. <laughs>
0: Perfect answer from a guy who heads up a thing called the Future of Humanity Institute. You should know Bostrom and his cohorts are serious thinkers. This idea of protecting ourselves from artificial intelligence threats in the future, it's supported by revered theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking. SpaceX and Tesla founder Elon Musk has given $10 million to the cause. And a bunch of other big thinker scientists have signed letters of support and concern. Concern for what?
1: Skynet has become self-aware. In one hour, it will initiate a massive nuclear attack on its enemy.
0: What enemy? Us! Humans! Except this is not a bad Terminator sequel. Bostrom is the type of person who isn't going to make Terminator jokes with me. So I started by asking him whether we're capable of making machines that are morally good.
4: I don't think we're currently capable of that. But we will have to get that capability by the time we have the capability of making machines that are truly intelligent. In a sense, it's a race between two horses. So there is a, a horse that is galloping fast, which represents the rapidly advancing state of the art, a lot of people are trying to make machines that are truly intelligent. And then there is the other horse, which is kind of the safety horse, uh, of figuring out if you had a machine that was generally intelligent, how could you make it safe? And so I think it's important that the second horse wins the race.
0: How is the second horse doing right now?
4: Well, it's kind of starting from behind, but it's been accelerating over the last year or so.
0: Is a super intelligent machine our biggest threat?
4: So that's a difficult question. If one is asking about existential risks, like things that could destroy our entire future, then I think AI has to rank high. But whilst I think the development of machine superintelligence would pose significant existential risks, it also, if we get it right, could help prevent a lot of other existential risks.
0: Is it possible that We should be okay with the idea that once we create super intelligent machines, they get rid of humanity and actually end up displaying the morality that we have programmed into them. And, you know, we we become their ancestors and that's actually okay?
4: Well, I think that there might be both okay and non-okay ways for the future to be dominated by machine intelligence. We can conceive of superintelligences that could shape the future according to their preferences, and it would be complete loss. Say, uh, a superintelligent AI whose only goal is to make as many paperclips as possible, you get the future filled up with paperclip factories.
0: What should the goals be then?
4: Instead of trying to explicitly describe some utopian end state, we would specify some process whereby the AI could figure out what it is that we would have wanted it to do. So suppose... That you could give the AI the goal to do that which we would have asked it to do if we had 40,000 years, and then leverage the AI's superior intelligence to figure out exactly what that ideal implies.
0: Can you give a non theoretical example of this?
4: No. So the. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> but if we just try to write down a list of all the things we care about, we will forget to list something or we will poorly specify something the human mind is kind of myopic and limited, just as, I mean, imagine if there were a tribe of apes 10 million years ago, and they were contemplating whether they should like transition to become Homo sapiens. And and you could imagine that they would think that this could be a great idea, because why? Well, what would be so great about humans? You could have like unlimited bananas. And it's true that we can have kind of unlimited bananas now, but there is also more to the human condition than that that they might not even have thought of. And so similarly, I think there are potentially enormous values that that are hard for us currently to fathom with our three pound lumpy brains that, that, that we used to think and feel and perceive values with.
0: Unfortunately, we have no decisive machine to make this decision for us. Instead, we have yours truly and senior marketplace tech correspondent Molly Wood. Hi, Molly. What do you think?
2: If you can build a computer with artificial intelligence, you could also build a computer, in theory, with emotional intelligence. And I think that that is something worth exploring as we talk about artificial intelligence, because it is not going away. It, it, there will, There's no way you're going to slow down the train, you know I mean? The, the safety horse <laughs> yes, that Nick Bostrom talked safety, about might safety. catch up, <laughs> but you're never going to slow down the lead horse. I mean, that's, you know, that has left the paddock or whatever
0: horses yeah, do. Yeah, it's on the um, track. It's going. It's on
2: the track. It's at a full gallop.
0: I mean, every parent hopes that their child is, is better than them, right? But we're going to pass our problems down to them, aren't we? We're going to give them our biases and our interest in unlimited bananas.
2: For one thing, I don't think we're trying to build machines. I don't think the stated goal is to build machines that are better than us. The goal is to build machine systems and machine learning systems that can make us better. It is ultimately self-interested. That's the reason that we're building them in the first place. Sure. But the computers will have the ability to weed out those elements. And when machines get created that are better than us, they'll, they'll probably get created By other machines, Mm. it's not the first generation of AI we have to worry about. It's the (laughs) the, it's the generation that comes after. The generation that was itself created by AI.
0: This is a terrible future. Maybe we'll be dead by then.
2: Ben, you know what story I really like?
0: Which one? The one about the squirrels. (laughs)
2: Because here's why.
0: Okay. The squirrels win. The squirrels win. That is actually a very good. Oh God, you just made me feel so much better.
2: And the squirrels ultimately outsmarted the machine and rendered the machine an
0: obsolete desk object. Wow! Is it evil, the decisive machine? <laughs> what well, you? I feel like you're on the side of I'm down. This is good.
2: I, no, 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 no. All of this poses serious risks to humanity. No question. But the computerized part of me. Oops. <laughs> I knew it. The computer. The computer-like thinker. I guess. Would say that, that evil is irrelevant to a machine.
0: So we're going with not evil. Is that what we're doing?
2: I'm going with not evil on purpose. Not intentionally evil. <laughs> I'm going with not evil. Fine. Fine. You have pin hold me. The machines are not evil.
0: Yet. <laughs> next week on Codebreaker. Here's her address so
1: you can go kill her.
0: If you want access to all of this season's episodes, you don't have to wait till next week for the next one to come out. You do have to crack the code embedded in this episode though. You're actually hearing the code right now. If you want to solve it, you'll have to know what to call it. How to do that? You can use a decisive machine that knows how to listen. Our show is produced by Claire Tennisketter, edited by Dave Shaw. Special thanks to Betsy Streisand and Dan Bobkoff. Also Meg Kramer and Brad Fisher made a bunch of the music in this episode. Codebreaker is made in partnership with the nice folks at the website techinsider.io. You should go there, see their stuff, our stuff, and more. They also made an amazing video of our squirrel story. You should watch it. Just don't believe what they say about us.
4: They would think that this could be a great idea because why? Well, what would be so great about humans? You could have like unlimited bananas.
0: I'm Ben Johnson. Codebreaker is a Marketplace production from APM.